Good morning, everyone. Am Good morning. I on? <laughs> Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. My name is Gretchen, and today we'll be reading from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right. Oh, hello. Can you hear me? For the most part. Way in the back, can you hear me? All right. Good. Welcome to Redemption Flagstaff. How's everybody doing? Who's, uh, who's hot? All right. Just as you sweat out there, just remember that the Lord Jesus was on a cross for you, okay? So deal with that. Thanks. Oh, hey, hey, Curtis. Thanks. Oh, Curtis gave me a water. Cheers for Curtis. <laughs> so listen, this has been a long time coming. It's been five months uh, since we last were able to gather together. And what a splendid time and way to be able to do that. Big thanks to Coconino High School for letting us be out here and the district and for all of you for being so patient, for being so engaging, for sharing your thoughts and opinions as we've tried to do this the best way possible to love you and to love our neighbors. And so we're really excited to gather this morning. We're going to open up and start in the Gospel of John. We're going to be doing this for probably the next 40 weeks, working through that book. Uh, a lot of you have been asking if, uh, how long are we going to be outside? Uh, we don't know. So so uh, just kind of keep hanging in there. We know next week we'll be outside uh, and probably the week after, but just kind of keep tracking with us uh, and engaging with us. And this is kind of the new normal for right now, which is pretty normal for this season to have to adjust to new things. And so, uh, again, we're so delighted you're here. Uh, I'm going to jump right in. There's so many stories I'd like to share about the last five months, and maybe we'll have time to do that. Uh, but given how hot it is, I'm going to try and just get right to the point. I think the best thing and the thing we need most in our lives right now is the Word of God. And so uh, let me just open us up with a quick intro, and then we're going to pray together for God to illuminate His Word and for the Spirit of God to teach us this morning. Uh, but I want to share and open with a quote from A.W. Tozer, the late theologian, pastor, and author in his book about the book and gospel of John. And he says this about this gospel. He says, of all the books of the Bible, none presents Christ as supremely as the gospel of John. I believe the reason it captures our hearts is John's approach. Whereas the apostle Paul presents Christ in a theological setting, John uses the mystical one. In doing so, John does not disregard theology, for there's plenty of theology in this gospel. Rather, he uses theology as a ladder to climb to the heights of Christ's nature. Some may recoil at my use of the word mystical, but I believe it accurately describes the personality and temperament of the Apostle John. Mystical as employed by the Gospel of John simply refers, and this is very important, simply refers to the cultivation of a deep appreciation of the unique nature of Christ and our fascination with him. And Tozer's beginning, Tozer's love for the Gospel of John, I long to be ours as we enter into this study that we would long to know Jesus more, that our fascination with Jesus would grow as we get the opportunity to gaze upon a documentary about his life. And more on that in just a bit. 
And so before we move forward, let's pray that the Spirit of God would grant us that heart so as we open up the Scriptures, we would see Him do the work we cannot do ourselves. Also, as you know, every week we pray for another local church in town. And we're thankful for the partnership we have. We're going to pray for our friends over at Church for the Nations. They've been a great partner over the last five months in a lot of the work that we've been doing in the city and beyond. And so let's pray for the Spirit to illuminate to us and for Him to do that for them as well. Let's bow our heads. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for prayer. And we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning and to hear from your word. God, we trust it to be able to do far more than we ever could. And so we know, and we'll even hear today, it does not return void. So as your word goes forth, would it change us and form us to be greater lovers of Christ and thereby greater lovers of one another and thereby greater lovers of our neighbors and the city you've called us to minister to? God, so would you bless us and speak to us? We pray for our brothers and sisters at Church for the Nations. We thank you so much for Pastor Daniel and the rest of their staff, God, for the grace and mercy that's been given to them that they would proclaim the gospel through their local expression. God, bless them today as they gather outside as well. And would you transform and unite your church for the glory of your name and your kingdom in this city. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so let me give you some background on the author of this book, the Apostle John. John is the son of Zebedee, which was probably really important for you, the brother of James. little Bible humor for you. Him and James were the two parts of the first century rock band Sons of Thunder. Uh, if you're not familiar with that reference, that's probably okay. But in Luke chapter 9, another gospel documentary about the life of Jesus, we find out that Jesus is preaching the gospel to some people. They reject Jesus, say, no, thank you. And so James and John walk up to Christ and say, Jesus, like, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them? And Jesus is like, no. Like, that, that's not what we do here, James and John. Later in Mark chapter 10, you see these same two guys impetuously ask for Christ's, like, honor to be sitting at his right and left hand, to be in these positions of honor right after he had just told them he was about to suffer and die for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of salvation. Like, these guys are just impetuous, kind of tell it like it is guys, and that's really beneficial for us as we open the gospel of John. We learn from the historian Tertullian that John was the only of the apostles to not die a martyr's death, okay? And so of, uh, not including Judas, right? That's a little bit different, but the other 12, uh, they all die a martyr's death except for the apostle John, although they tried. He was exiled to an island called Patmos. While on Patmos, they boiled him alive in a vat of oil and he lived. Now, I don't know if you, if you have ever cooked and got oil splatter on your skin. It's super painful, right? Imagine being boiled in it. Now, everyone who was there present watching this happen and watch him survive, everyone got saved and gave their life to Jesus right there on the spot, which just makes sense, right? Like if we were to pull that off today, if you're here and not a Christian, you would leave a Christian, okay? And so this is the story of John's background. He ends up leaving Patmos. He starts a school in Ephesus. And the reason why this is important is because the people that he begins to disciple there in, Pat, uh, sorry, in Ephesus at his school would go on to shape early first, second, and even into third century thought, sociologically, philosophically, that John's thoughts and his love of Jesus have shaped the world as we know it. He invests in people like St. Ignatius, Polycarp, and Irenaeus, that these thinkers, that these philosophers, that these people that would espouse thought and what it meant to be human in the first few centuries of our world all could trace their lineage back to knowledge given them passed down from the Apostle John. 
John was also considered one of the inner circle of Jesus. So Jesus chose 12 apostles to follow him. Inside that, he had three, Peter, James, and John that he was closest to. But the Bible tells us that John was probably Christ's closest confidant, his best friend and the one with whom he loved. And so what we get when we open the gospel of John is not simply this uh, testimony from a distance, but rather we get an eyewitness account from the best friend of Jesus about his life, his death, and his resurrection, and it has transformed the world. And we get to study it. What a gift for us. Last thing I'll say is that we want to look at the purpose of this book. Why was it written? And the benefit of this is John actually gave us the purpose himself, so I don't have to try and study to find it. He's very explicit in telling us, this is why I've written the Gospel of John. And so we start there. If you have your Bibles or on your phone, please open up to John chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 30 and 31. Again, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we see the purpose of the book. He says this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, listen, you want to know I'm writing this? I, why I have curated this gospel, why I have written this is so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world. He is the one with whom we have all been waiting for. He has come, and this is a testimony that you would believe in him. The beauty of the language here, it's not just mental assent, because I think when we think belief, we can think it means I just need to think rightly or believe. It's not just a mental check-in to Jesus is who he says he is, but rather it's an abiding trust in the person of Jesus. And you can know this, any close relationship you have in your life, husbands to wives, wives to kids, roommates to roommates, friends to friends, Trust is not just something that is there that you just say you believe. It's something that is lived out in how you live your life with that person. And so the same desire from John is to form a church, is to form the people, is to move non-believers to believers that what they might walk in is a faithful, living, trusting relationship with the Messiah who has saved them. So again, the hope in John would be that we would be formed the same way John hoped the early first century church would be formed. The great documentarian Ken Burns, if you're familiar with him, if you've ever watched uh, Civil War by Ken Burns, uh, phenomenal. If you haven't seen his stuff, please go watch it. It's beautiful stuff. And he just curates and tells these stories of these amazing historical events, his most famous being the Civil War. And he said this about why he tells stories the way he does. And he said like this, he says, my job is to wake the dead that's what I do for a living. In a similar way, the documentary that is the Gospel of John is charismatic in its nature. In other words, it has an agenda. It's trying to change you and it's trying to change me if we allow it to do so. It's trying to wake us from our slumber. It's trying to wake us from our death that we might look more like Christ in our lives. And so this is, the reason why it's such a long intro to this is that I want that to be our desire, that we would show up here Sunday mornings and bear the heat and bear the realities of being outside and not comfortable and all that kind of stuff because you are actually here because you want to be more like Jesus and because you want to love Jesus and you want to love your neighbors and you want to serve and bless those people around you because that is and what Jesus is about. 
if we're just here because this is what we're supposed to do, which I, I doubt that's what's happening for many of us that would come outside and do service this way. But if it is, then may, maybe, maybe don't. We are here on Sundays to hear from the Word of God and to sing because we want and desire to be more like Christ. Amen? Let's get a little love out there, guys. I mean, come on. There it is. Okay. Nice. That was pretty good. All the way in the back. That's good. Okay, so, uh, so that is our desire. That is his desire. So here's what he does. We start in the end, but we're going to get back to the beginning and start in John chapter 1. Now, this is one of the most probably famous Bible passages in all of Scripture. It's also one of the most confusing, which is really interesting because so often when you get into evangelistic circles, they'll say, hey, if you want to know about Jesus, read the Gospel of John, which makes a ton of sense. However, the start of John is crazy confusing. In fact, the first time that I read the Gospel of John was shortly after I became a Christian freshman year of college, and I had no idea what was going on. And so we have the opportunity this morning to break down a very famous passage, which you'll notice about the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John is they serve as what is called an overture to the rest of the book. If you're not familiar with an overture, if you go to a play, generally the very first number that you listen to will set the themes, the characters, and the stage for the rest of the play. If anyone has seen Hamilton, that first song, which is crazy iconic and famous, that's an overture to the rest of the thing. Hot take, didn't think the movie was very good. Sorry. Um, I, no, but wait, wait. Not because the play's not good, it's just that should be experienced at Gamage, right? Like, that should be experienced in person. And so the movie was just disappointing to me, and uh, you can leave the church if you disagree. And so, uh, so Hamilton gives us kind of a, a lens of what this looks like. It's this overture over the first 18 verses sets the stage for what's to come throughout the entire, excuse me, the entire book. And so John 1.1, again, if you're there, let's look at the scriptures together as we open up this gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a great verse, powerful verse. I'm going to break down why, but a couple things on the back end that should probably be moving around in your head just a little bit. This should sound familiar to a lot of us. It should sound very familiar to anyone who said, I'm going to read the Bible in a year, right? Because you've always got to page one of the Bible where it says, in the beginning, God created, right? In the beginning, God. And so what John is doing here is trying to relocate us back into the creation narrative. He's trying to draw the people that would read this letter back into Genesis chapter one, back into the beginning of time so that he might place Christ in his necessary position of power and authority where he belongs. And so this connection is absolutely intentional. Now, the other Gospels do a similar thing. If you're not familiar, the Gospels were written Mark first, then Matthew, then Luke, then John was written last of the four Gospels. And you'll see this continuation. So in the Gospel of Mark, it begins the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Mark tries and sets the, 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 the location of uh, his Gospel at the beginning of, the Jesus, of Jesus' life. You get into the Gospel of Matthew, where he goes back to the life of Abraham some thou two, two three thousand years prior to that to say, no, let's go back even further. Then you get into the gospel of Luke and he goes all the way back to Adam, the first man created, to go back to creation in Genesis 1 and 2. But what John is trying to do is go even before that and try and tell the Jewish and the Greek thinkers of their day that literally the foundation of everything in the entire world finds its origin in Jesus. 
in the word, in God, that there is no other thought, there is no other thing that was not born of him. And this places us in a really helpful position as we think through the crazy complexities of our ever-changing world that we can trace this all the way back to a single solitary thing and person who is still the same today as he was then and reigns alive as king. So this is good news for us already in the beginning in just one verse in, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes as well. You also get the sniffs of the doctrine of the Trinity already here because you have them saying already in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, but the word was also God himself. And so you get two parts of the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead. If you're new to church or new to uh, faith or whatever, and you're trying to figure out Trinity, uh, I believe Doug G is doing a personal class on that at his house. He'll explain the whole deal for you. And so go and talk to him after service. You're welcome. What is John talking about, though, ultimately? Because this is a confusing verse. In the beginning was the word. What in the world is he talking about? Now, this had deep, massive connections both to the Jewish and to the Greek person, that this would have elicited a ton of, oh, yeah, I remember this, and this makes sense, and we studied this, so let's first talk about the Jew. So the Jew would have heard the word, and it would have attached to all sorts of Old Testament scriptures, all sorts of Old Testament teachings, all sorts of pieces of the Torah that said, in the beginning, God breathed out through his word and created. In the beginning, the word came to, right? The word is connected oftentimes to wisdom. And so the wisdom literature, as you go through the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, all of this stuff would have been built into the Jewish thought and say, in the beginning was the word. And there would have not been much problem for the Jewish thinker with that. Like, oh yeah, no, 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 we're familiar with the word. That, that makes sense. We, we got you there. Let's continue on. For the Greek thinker, there's also massive background to the word that John chooses to use here. The word in the Greek is the word logos. Maybe you've heard that term. But logos was not just, not just another word. It was the word. It was the transformational belief and reality of the Greek people as shaped by their thinkers and philosophers that culminated and brought together all streams of thought for them. That every rational and spiritual belief was tied to the logos. That indeed, if they had a deity that would reign over all deities, it would be, the logos would be the thing that would be transcendent that even the Greek gods themselves would be submitted to. So Zeus was subject to the transcendent logos of the Greek thought. And so when John employs this word, he's borrowing a word from their culture to speak to something far greater than anything they could know. Because now he's saying that in the beginning was that word, that logos that you think so much about, it's been there forever. And again, the Greek thinker and the Greek person would have no problem with this. But of course, the logos has been around forever. But of course, rational thought and, and the, the idea of, of this being this transcendent force that unites all things, that would have been normal for the Greeks. So this, again, not that big a deal. John 1.1 would preach just fine to the Jewish or to the Greek audience and surely, I think, okay for us as well. But it's really when he gets to verse 2 that the bomb would drop, especially for the Greek people. And so let's look verses 2 and 3. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. And so this is where the ball drops, especially for the Greek person and the Greek thinker. 
Because now what John is saying is, hey, you know that logos, I'm telling you it's a person. I'm telling that all the things you thought about life and the connection of life and rational thought and reason, that all of it is summed up not in an ethereal, random thing, but rather in the person of Jesus Christ. And this would have blown up their worlds that everything they thought was all centered in this one person. And so John, with intentionality, takes this language from the Greeks that he might reach the Greeks. Uh Uh-oh, everybody hold on. (laughs) His desire, again, remember, is that all who would hear this gospel would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so he takes their language and repurposes it to point them to the truth that everything they think they know is centered around a person, and that person lived, and he died, and he rose on the third day. He's calling them to belief. He's calling them to faith. He's calling them to trust, and he's doing it for us today too, because in all things, Jesus the fulfillment for them. He's the fulfillment and that all of the culmination of their belief about the word being spoken, that the Messiah coming, they're pointing them to, it was Jesus and he came and he lived and he rose. So believe. For the Greek, all your thought, he came and he lived and he rose. So give your life to him. And now for the 21st American cultural person in our world today who is out here right now and exists in our city, Jesus too is the fulfillment of all their thought, whether they realize it or not. The last five months have been so strange. As you look at the landscape of the stories and the people that we've had the opportunity to sit down with and be with, minister to, be ministered from, everyone has a significantly different story and narrative to share. That this season has been increasingly personal. As people have been attached to people who've gotten sick, some people have not at all. Meanwhile, all sorts of other things continue to rage in our culture and world. And there begins to be this reality that across all the meetings and all the conversations, there seems to be this deep longing for something that is beyond the fighting, that's beyond the death, that's beyond the trial, that's beyond this difficult, I cannot find answers for why this has happened type of reality. And the good news of John 1, 1 through 3, is that we, as a collective body, those here who would call Jesus Christ and Lord, can sit before the watching world and say, yeah, listen, everything culminates. Everything is rounded up in. Every answer to be found, every solution that needs to be embraced is found in Jesus Christ. And he is alive. Where there's hopelessness, Christ brings hope. Where there's confusion, Christ brings clarity. Where there's sadness, he brings joy. Where there's discontent, he brings peace. Where there's lack of understanding, he brings wisdom. Like at every single level, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and the answer for what plagues us daily. That all the thoughts ultimately point and lead and rest with him.
And so in the last five months, regardless of, I don't say regardless, that's not the right terminology, wherever you have been, the word of God should point us towards joy and encouragement this morning because it's all about him. And if he were still dead, then let's pack up and go home because it's foolishness to be here. But because he rose and because he's alive and because he's king and because he reigns today and oversees this world, because everything was made by him, through him, and for him, we can rejoice and celebrate. That's the good news of just a few verses that we get here. But he's not just the answer for us. He's indeed the answer for all of creation. And one of my favorite passages in the entirety of Scripture, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So if you're in the Gospel of John, turn 25, 30 pages to your right, maybe 50, I don't know. It depends on what type of lettering you've got. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says this. He, and this is talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You see the echoes of John 1, verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's one of my favorite passages because it just sets us all in this opportunity for worship for what he is and what he's done. That he's reconciling all things. Let's break down some of this real quick. In him all things hold together. Man, it is easy, easy, easy to get disheartened with some of the brokenness and some of the pain and the difficulty that plagues our individual lives and plagues our corporate and national lives. It's easy to think that in any given moment, this is all going to fall apart. But we have one who tells us that he holds the world together. We have one who says that he's sovereign and that in the midst of all of that, he didn't stop being king. This doesn't give us license to not act like him. It gives us a desire to act more like him, to be vice regents, to be emulators, of this one who is holding the world together, would we too be that type of people, church? Church, would, we, would the people be able to look to the church and say, as they emulate a Jesus who's holding the world together, would they look to the church and say, man, the church is keeping the world together? In the way that we love one another and we love our neighbors, would the church be the beacon of hope that says, maybe there is hope that there's something on the other side of this that is more beautiful than what we see right now? And this is not because we're great. It's because Jesus is great. Again, you focus on the end. Why, why is this possible? Because he has reconciled all things by the blood of his cross. Because of what he's done, we now can. The next one, he is the head of the body, the church. 
One of the things that I know has been difficult for many of us to watch is there's been a lot of infighting in the church. Across local churches who disagree with each other about various things, within local churches who disagree about various things. And I understand it. I really do. Like, I get it. We've, I think Anthony and I tallied the amount of meetings we've been in in the last five months. It's 11,000. And so, it's not real. Um, everyone was like doing the math. They're like, That's, there's not enough time for 11,000. No, there's not. It's been a lot. What I've been encouraging this, what I've been encouraged by the people of our church is that in the midst of disagreement, every single person, except for one or two, and I'll, I'll say their names later, um, every single person, their desire was for Jesus. And it was for his kingdom to come to bear in greater ways in our community. There were differences in what, what we believed about how to get there. But across the church, there was a desire to see Jesus exemplified and to see Jesus glorified. And you need to know that about each other. Because, listen, not just the world, but specifically Satan would seek to say that you don't like each other because you disagree about stuff. That's absolute foolishness and not from the Lord. And the desire for us as the church is to say we all look to one person as the example. We do not compare ourselves to each other. We compare ourselves to Jesus because he's the head. I'm not the head. Anthony's not the head and y'all aren't the head. Jesus is the head of the church. And so we compare and line ourselves up with him. And as we do that, unity comes. The, the, the classic marriage illustration that we say in premarital, right? That is you, both husband and wife move towards Jesus. Naturally, they get closer, right? Like you get, see, see what happens? Because he's here. And when you go, you get closer. Church, it's the same thing. that as we think about the difficult landscape, what does it mean for us to truly pursue unity and beauty to present that to the world? I want to encourage us to have our eyes focused where they should be focused. Primarily on that of Jesus. And as you run after Jesus, you exhort one another to run after Jesus, we will draw closer in unity. The beauty, the beauty of unity in the church is that we decide to minister and be with one another in spite of our differences and disagreements because they are secondary to our pursuit of Jesus. That does not mean we don't have hard conversations. That does not mean that from the pulpit we're not going to tell you what to think because that's what we do. But we are going to drive towards Christ. And that's why this gospel, that's why this story, it's why this book was chosen for Redemption Church. Because it's going to allow us, if, if we press in, and, and hear me, here's my challenge to you. Don't wait till next Sunday to get back into the gospel of John. Please, church, read this gospel as many times over as you can over the next 40 weeks that we study it. Be, be smarter, be wiser, be better. Be it so that when Anthony and I come and preach up here about this book, you could literally, don't do it, but you could stand up and say, that's not right, okay? Again, don't do it, but, but be ready to do it. And if I call on you, be ready to come up. Study the word of God. 
Don't just trust what we're saying. Study the word of God and encounter Jesus because he's our leader. He's our head. He unites the church and he gives us a chance to be a beautiful witness to the watching world. And then lastly, he makes peace for us by the blood of his cross. That for all of us here, man, we've been in this for a while. We've done digital for five months. I think coming out the gate, I don't know, we had like, it was like 700, you know, views and engagements on the, on the digital service. I think this last one we had like 13. And so there's been this missing opportunity for the church to just be excited and joy-filled that our Lord and Savior Jesus went to the cross after living a perfect life and died the death that we deserve to die and rose on the third day to grant us new life in him. It is the greatest news this world has ever heard. And every week we want to proclaim that from this stage and with y'all that you would go and proclaim it to the watching world because they must know that peace has been attained. But it's not in themselves. And it's not in some other ideology. It's not in fixing one social issue. It's not in navigating everything correctly. It's not about having all the knowledge or watching and listening to all the right podcasts. The way peace is attained is solely through the blood of Jesus on the cross. And that has been given to us. And so that's why when we come back up here and we sing the next two songs, I would love if you guys were louder than the band. Because we haven't had a chance to do this in a while. About three months ago, two months ago, we had an opportunity as a staff to go and sit and be in a worship service, just the group of staff members down with uh, a leader from Redemption Peoria. And i tell you what, man, as soon as that first strum came, I must have been in tears for the next 30 minutes. There's something so incredibly beautiful and profound that the people of God get to sing together. And I don't think it's just the beauty of singing. I think it's the fact that when we sing, it falls upon the ears of our Savior, who is alive in and through his church, through the Holy Spirit. And so as we start off this book in the Gospel of John, as we start off this week, this was just kind of meant as an exhorting for us to desire more of Jesus, to herald what he's done, And to know that we cannot do it alone. We have to do it with one another because his glory is at stake and his mission is at stake and the world and the city that we are called to love is at stake. And so praise God that the word was in the beginning and was with God and was God. And that word, as we'll study very soon, became flesh in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle John. God, we thank you that (laughs) we just get to be together. God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you transform us? Would you make us more like Jesus? 
We desperately need you. Even when we don't think we need you, that's probably when we need you the most. And so God, we just, we long for more of you. We remind ourselves of the truths we learned today, God, that you call us to trust you. And we can do that because you have been around since the very beginning. Jesus, because you have created all things, that you hold all things together. And that, Lord, it's not just that you wield that power from above, but that you came down into this world to show us love and humility, grace and mercy, that peace would be secured through your actions because we couldn't do it on our own. Lord, we repent of the desires and the, the trivial movements towards trying to achieve it without you. And we ask for more of you and more of the power of the Spirit of God to be a people and a witness to the watching world that peace has been attained through Jesus. May we live it out in love of you, one another, and this world. God, would you bless us now as we respond and sing. In Christ's name we pray, amen.